Welcome back to Bitches and Bangers. I'm your host, Aideen, and in today's episode, we're diving deeper into the soap opera that is Fleetwood Mac. Last time we talked about the band's turbulent relationships and the making of their iconic album, Rumours. But today, we're focusing on what happened after the release of that album. From the band's creative struggles to their ongoing personal drama, we're exploring the ups and downs of Fleetwood Mac's post-Rumours era. We'll be diving into the making of their subsequent albums, including Tusk and Mirage, and exploring the impact that they had on the band's sound and legacy. And of course, we'll be digging into all the juicy gossip surrounding the band's romantic entanglements and personal struggles during this time. So grab a drink, sit back, and get ready for part two of The Soap Opera of Fleetwood Mac. Hello party people! It is me. I am back. You look pretty good for a dead bitch. Yes, I have returned. I've arisen from the grave. Um, I would like to address the audacity of me taking a, I don't know, hiatus, if you will, after releasing literally two full episodes. Who do I think I am? That we're not. A, we're not at that point yet, Aideen. We cannot be doing this. Um, but I am back. I mean, what can I say? Not to sound like a grade A twat here or anything, but I've just, I've been busy, guys. I've been busy. I was on holidays, went to Marbella with the girls, had a fantastic time, got a bit of sun, went to karaoke, somehow managed to get the mic and sing the entire eight and a half minutes of Don McLean's American Pie and captured the audience, so that was fun. Um dyed my hair myself, still red but can't afford to get it done, my little brother and his girlfriend Kiva were over, one of my best friends Eve was over, we went to see Dirty Dancing, I've, that's the second time I've seen Dirty Dancing since what, February? And it slaps, guys it slaps, go see it if you can, it's not on the West End anymore but it is going on tour in the UK and Ireland and um, to convince you even more, the people who are playing Johnny and Baby are in fact boyfriend and girlfriend in real life, which makes it so much hotter. But I actually need serious suggestions on this because I can't, it's been, God, two weeks since I last seen it and I cannot get the soundtrack out of my head. No matter how hard I try, I've seen the show twice now on stage. I thought maybe if I watch the movie, because I haven't seen the movie in years, maybe if I watch the movie it will like get it out of my system, but it actually did the complete opposite. So the the end credits were rolling and I was like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Alexa play Mickey and Sylvia's Love is Strange. You know? I oh my god, my Alexa started playing it. No. Can you hear that? Sorry, I have to pause to get her to stop. She's playing Love is Strange. Sorry about that. Had to uh, stop my Alexa. She wasn't even playing Love is Strange. She was playing bloody Where is My Honey? Still by Mickey and Sylvia, so she got that much. I'm quite far away from her as well. She got good hearing. But anyway, yeah, that's been stuck in my head. Christ, can't get it out. Um, The entire soundtrack, Hungry Eyes. I've had the time of my life. Cry for me, is that what that song's called? Anyway, go see it it slaps but that's where I've been that is where I've been um oh my god I don't think this is recording on the right microphone 
hee 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 never mind it was recording on the right microphone i'm so sorry i'm a hot mess today but i was itching to get back recording i honestly i really feel like if i didn't work which you know is my dream i would be banging out these episodes because i had a full day yesterday on the bank holiday monday sat down and wrote this entire episode in one day couldn't get enough of it and now I'm just dying to record it so I feel like I have to I have to get it out of my system so if I'm a bit like scattered and all over the place and hyper you're just gonna have to bear with me but I'm super excited for this episode I feel like I'm excited for every episode but I mean if you haven't guessed from the title and the intro and from where we left off in our last episode we're going back and we're continuing our journey with the one and only Fleetwood Mac. So yeah, let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer before we start. Um, I am well aware that the sound on this podcast is not the best and it is probably very sharp in your poor ears. I'm so sorry. I'm just really poor and I can't afford new equipment. But when I get an extra bit of cash, I will be investing in some new stuff but please bear with me I'm so sorry and if you are listening through the terrible sound I don't think it's too bad today I know in the last episode it's pretty bad if you are listening through this I appreciate you thank you so much and yeah now now we're gonna get into it okay so I believe the last episode we kind of left off we left off a bit all over the place but more or less we kind of parked the episode when Fleetwood Mac released rumours and you know the success of that how many copies they sold all that jazz so we're kind of moving on from that and you know with the success of the album came a tour and the band's heightened emotions and turmoil followed them as they embarked on this lucrative worldwide tour to promote the album. They did 96 shows from February 1977 up until August 1978, hitting up um, the US, Europe, Japan, Oceania. Is that how you say that? I'm looking at it now. Do you know when you look at a word? And I was like, I don't think that's how you say it. But you know what I mean? Like Australia, New Zealand, the Polynesian Islands. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and during this tour, they embarked on an eight-month US leg, which became a debauched cocaine and champagne-fueled odyssey across the continent, which cemented the band's legendary reputation for excess. And the heady cocktail of success, drugs, and more money than they knew how to spend left little space for reflection or time to slow down. Goes without saying that um, the members of Fleetwood Mac probably didn't have self-care days like we do here. Well, I mean, I do. I hope you're all all having a few self-care days, but it didn't seem like they had time for it. Um, Christine bought Anthony Newley's old mansion in Coldwater Canyon and promptly installed her own English pub and a sculpture studio. Outside were parked a pair of matching Mercedes-Benz. She also, our Queen Christine, went and dumped lighting director Curry Grant. 
if you don't know who Mr. Grant is, he is the boy that she wrote, the boy, the man that she wrote, um, You Make Love and Fun About. Remember? We discussed this in the last episode. She told everybody, including her ex-husband John, that it was about her dog. It was a questionable move, but iconic. So yeah, she actually said, you know what? Got loads of money here now. Loads of drugs, loads of alcohol. I can have whoever I want. And do you know who she replaced him with? Only Dennis Wilson of the bloody Beach Boys. And the Beach Boys were still massive at this point. So good for you, Christine. You go, girl. She said, he awakened things in me I'd been scared to experience and made me feel the extremes of every emotion. So that was Christine. Um, Mick Fleetwood bought a cliff top house in Malibu and a fleet of vintage sports cars. Lindsay, who seemed the least impressed by the trappings of this material world, bought a fine home in LA, which he shared with the rumours producer Richard, um, while John McPhee divided his time between a 40-foot Schoner moored at Marina del Rey and the home in Beverly Hills. And Stevie purchased a large mock Tudor home above Sunset Boulevard, referred to as Fantasyland, and a home in Phoenix, which is still her base. Isn't that the most Stevie thing you've ever heard? A large mock Tudor home that she called Fantasyland. And then she tries to tell us that she finds it creepy when people call her a witch. Mm-mm. Nah, pick your team, Stevie, pick your team. So during this time, tensions were running high. They were at an all-time high. You think they were high recording rumours? Uh-uh. Ain't got nothing on what it was like being on the road during this shit. They were having to perform these songs about one another to each other and to thousands of people every night. They were imprisoned by their own near-mythic popularity. And behind the tinted glass, things were getting ugly. U-G-L-Y, ugly. Stevie said, it was just having to be together and being so unhappy. You don't want to sit in the same room, be on a plane after a show with somebody who hates you. It was not fun. Um, towards the end of the US leg of the 1977 Rumours Tour, Lindsay actually collapsed in the shower in Philadelphia in a hotel room and was later diagnosed with having a mild form of epilepsy and you know during this era will we say as the front man people were saying that his performances were more like exorcisms which is you know a direct parallel to what we were saying about stevie in the last episode and her performances of rihanna um and i think i did put a video up of that on my instagram story a while ago of that there's like a she used to do all of them but like there's a very specific one she did where it is like wow something is possessing her but i feel like i I successfully put that up because when i tell you um instagram keeps copywriting me for literally everything i try to put on my on my instagram um warren brothers are out to get me they're trying to sabotage my career because it's all warren brothers copywriting me so yeah um but anyway so that's like a direct parallel and what I think is funny and the audacity of this because people are saying that Lindsay is giving these you know exorcism like performances is one even whilst they were touring Australia for the tour for, obviously um Stevie was performing her witchy dance to of course Rihanna 
She was twirling under her hooded ponchos that she liked to wear with her, you know, um, flares and her big sleeves hanging out of the poncho. Well, actually, no, that would make no sense, Aideen, because there are no sleeves in a poncho. Anyway, you get the drift. She was looking all witchy, doing her dancey dance. And Lindsay um, put his jacket over his head and began dancing in a crude, crow-like imitation of her. Um, that's just rude, Lindsay. Like, get a grip. Get a life. Get a grip. Get away somewhere. Take a trip. That's what Shania meant when she wrote those lyrics. Uh, just get a life. You know, it's it, making fun of people is, it's not cool. Um, you wrote these songs. You're singing Go Your Own Way every night in front of everybody. Do you not think that's a big enough kick in the teeth for Stevie? Like, we don't need this. Um, yeah, it's like... No, I'm not here for it. Boo you. Um, Stevie said, Lindsay was angry, just mad at me. That wasn't a one-time thing. Lindsay and I had another huge thing that happened on stage in New Zealand. We had some kind of a fight and he came over, might have kicked me, did something to me and we stopped the show. He went off and we all ran at breakneck speed to the dressing room to see who could kill him first. Christine got to him first and then I got to him second. The bodyguards were trying to get in the middle of all of us. I think he's the only person I ever, ever slapped, says Christine. I actually might have chucked a glass of wine too. I just didn't think it was the way to treat a paying audience. I mean, aside from making a mockery of Stevie like that, really unprofessional, over the top. Yes, she cried. She cried a lot. I agree. It's childish. Ch- childish. Um, I would be... Yeah, I'm all here for the drama and everything. But if I was there at that show, I would be like... Are you not embarrassed? Is this not embarrassing? Like... And it, uh, I love... I'm, I'm, I'm really picturing Christine slapping Lindsay across the face. Like, that is an image I never want to get out of my head. Christine just exudes big dick energy. She is so cool. I want her as my friend. Um, it's also good to note that it was during this tour, and I did bring it up briefly in the last episode, but it was during this tour that Stevie and Fleetwood began their love affair, which was, as I said, we've discussed it in the last episode. Um, and to reiterate what Stevie said, Mick and I were absolutely horrified that this happened. We didn't tell anybody until the very end and then it blew up and was over. And you know, Lindsay and I have never, ever talked about Mick. Ever. Ever. That's a long time to not talk about something that serious. Like, God, talk about the elephant in the room. That must have been awkward. Um, It's also quite a good time to note that before the affair started so before Fleetwood it's called an affair basically because obviously like if Stevie was single and Mick was single it wouldn't technically be an affair but it's called an affair because although before the (laughs) sorry god in words before the affair started Although Mick and Jenny Boyd, who we talked about in the last episode, they were divorced. Well, actually, no. They only divorced in 1976, so a year before the Rumours tour started. And so they divorced, 
And then in the same year, they moved back in together and remarried to help their kids immigrate to the States. So they divorced because she cheated on him with his best friend, who was also one of the guitar players for Fleetwood Mac. Awkward, they divorced. Um, a few months later, they were like, oh no, let's, let's, let's move back in together and remarry, get the kids to the States there. Did that. He fecks way off on a worldwide tour, starts shagging the singer. Um, yeah, Mick was a little rascal. He is, he's causing ruckus here in Fleetwood Mac. Um, so yeah, the rock and roll lifestyle was starting to take its toll on the band, in particular with Stevie, who, as I mentioned in the last episode, relied heavily on drugs. Christine says that in those days, it was quite natural to walk around with a great old sack of cocaine in your pocket and do these huge rails, popping acid, making hash cookies. I love the term great old sack. I've never heard that um, in reference to to cocaine or any drug, really. Um, yeah, so cocaine, acid and hash cookies just sounds like an anxiety attack waiting to happen um no thank you but we're fast forwarding then so this is you know the rumors tour has happened the drama it's not letting down tensions are high clearly like the therapeutic writing of rumors and like you know trying to get all your feelings out on the table didn't really work um christine's bitch smacking Lindsay. Lindsay's being a child and mocking Stevie, Stevie's crying, she's taking drugs, they're all, actually, they're all taking drugs, Mick's um, cheating on his remarried wife with Stevie, it's all getting a bit bloody wild in here, so we're going into 1978, and the group are going in to record their follow-up album to Rumours, which would be Tusk, now, Tusk, before we get into it, um, a bit off script here. People either love Tusk or they hate it, and you'll kind of see why it wasn't at the time like it wasn't the most successful thing. But I think Tusk fucking slaps. Some of the songs on that, like firstly the title track Tusk, <sighs> sensational. You listen to that with headphones in, good quality headphones, and the live version from nineteen ninety seven slaps that marching band so good um the song storm or storms i think it's called storms beautiful beautiful song and um sarah that's also i'll talk about that song in a while but you know i am personally a tusk stan i get why people don't like it if especially at the time when they were used to hearing rumours, like, I completely get why it might be a bit of a controversial choice. But here we are. So, Lindsay convinced Mick to let his work... Oh, also, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, but Mick Fleetwood is actually the band manager. So, he obviously founded the band with uh, Peter Green and John McPhee. And then he is the drummer and he's also the band manager. So just bear that in mind. This is why it's always like, we talk to Mick, we talk to blah, 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 because he's the manager. So Lindsay convinced Mick to let his work on their next album be more experimental and be allowed to work on tracks at his home, 
because he had a home studio before bringing them to the rest of the band in the studio so this then obviously was the result of the band's 12th studio album tusk which was a whopping 20 at the time it's not so it's not such a wild concept now but at the time it was a 20 track double album which then was released in 1979 and produced three hit singles buckingham's tusk which featured the usc trojan marching band christine's think about me and Stevie's six and a six and a half minute opius sarah um and fun fact um original guitarist peter green remember him he was like he was the genius behind Fleetwood mac um he was so good so good um go listen to some of Fleetwood Mac's earlier stuff and you know but he was also the guy that um got taken into a hippie commune and took really bad LSD and acid and tripped balls and never really came back well I mean he did come back just like not mentally but he actually took part in some of the sessions of Tusk um he played on Christine's track Brown Eyes but it's not credited but yeah I thought that thought that was a nice little fun fact he he made his way back if only for a short minor role but he did it good for you peter good for you so going into tusk Lindsay was determined to create an album that sounded nothing like rumors um excuse me sorry i had a little frog in my throat there and this goes against everything that big record labels like warren brothers um try to do and I've talked about this before and it's a it's a concept that I will continue talking about. Um, I talked about it a lot in the episode about the Grammys about like record labels and the industry. So like, you know, music and creating music is one thing and then the music industry is a completely different thing. It's the same with any industry. All they care about is money, sales, power. Boom. Um, so if they've seen you've been successful in one thing, they, you best fucking believe they're doing everything in their power to keep you in that box to have you like a little hamster on a wheel churning out the same old tracks you know they're like come on another one another one um and you know like probably that's a good business strategy but people get bored of that like listening listeners they don't we don't want to hear the same shit and i also think like you can't do an album like Rumours again. How can you? There was so much tension and emotion and hurt that went into that album that it it would honestly do a disservice to Rumours if they tried to make another one. It'd just be too forced. Um, So yeah, it kind of went against everything that Warren Brothers were trying to get them to do. Um... And in an interview in 2019, Mick actually described Tusk as his personal favourite and said, kudos to Lindsay for us not doing a replica of rumours. Lindsay became quite obsessive and frantic during the recording of Tusk. Oh my God, excuse me, just a little burp, whoopsie. Um, The producer at the time commented on Buckingham's obsessive nature in the studio and said he was a manic no he was a maniac sorry 
wrong use of the word. He was a maniac. The first day I set the studio up as usual. Then he said, turn every knob 180 degrees from where it is now and see what happens. He'd tape microphones to the studio floor and get into a sort of push-up position to sing. Early on, he came in and he freaked out in the shower and cut off all his hair with nail scissors. He was stressed. Yeah. I mean, the girlies know what it's like when you're stressed and it's like the, the number one thing you think of is your hair. How can I change my hair? So, you know what, Lindsay? I get it. I get why you did that. Um, You know, the title track, Tusk, employed a 112-piece marching band, um, which is just insane that is a that is a huge marching band how did they even record that i think they must have i actually think that they had to go outside into like a football pitch like and record that um yeah i mean christine said recording tusk was quite absurd the studio contract rider for refreshments was like a telephone directory exotic food delivered to the studio crates of champagne and it had to be the best with no thought of what it cost stupid really stupid someone once said that with the money we spent on champagne on one night they could have made an entire album and it's probably true um during this time, our good old boy, Mick. You see, people, I think nobody really talks about Mick, Mick Fleetwood. It's always Lindsay and Stevie with the odd Christine thrown in there too. But Mick, that man was causing the drama. So, he obviously got back with his wife, cheated on her with Stevie, ended things with Stevie. Him and his wife ended things again. And during the time of recording Tusk, he was causing quite the stir within the band again. Um, because Nick's discovered that he was having an affair with her good friend, Sarah Ricor, um, who was married to someone else. Uh, Stevie said, I lost Mick, which honestly wasn't that big of a deal because that was a rocky relationship. But losing my friend Sarah, that was a huge blow. Sarah was banished from from the studio by the rest of the band. No one was speaking and I wouldn't even look directly at Mick. That went on for months and it was a great fodder for writing. The songs poured out of us. Um, I mean, look, it wasn't the worst. It wasn't like it was just some random little, you know, fling because Fleetwood and Record actually ended up getting married in 1988 but divorced in 1995. So they had a good stint. What's that? Six years, seven years of marriage. So it could have been a lot worse. Um, so this, along with other things, inspired Stevie to write her beautiful song, Sarah. I think it's one of my favourites on the album. It's so gorgeous. Um, I think I touched on that a, a, a bit on the last episode where she had originally wrote like a 16-minute version of it or something and it's never been released and she said like it's her most personal track yet and you can definitely tell um it covers her secret affair with Mick and then him leaving Stevie for her best friend Sarah it also has to do with her unplanned pregnancy with the eagle singer Don Henley a pregnancy that she subsequently terminated um so yeah if you didn't know that Stevie was pregnant and she was pregnant with 
Don he Don Henley from the Eagles, nonetheless. Um, in 2014, Stevie was quoted saying, "Had I married Don and had that baby, and had she been a girl, I would have named her Sarah. But there was another woman in my life named Sarah, who shortly after that became Mick's wife, Sarah Fleetwood." Um, Lindsay shared in the linear notes of the record um, some of Stevie's songs were hard to rein in if you're very lyric driven and not overly worried about time and structure if it's more free form which a lot of Stevie's things can be six or more minutes is not hard to get into the nine minute version of this was something we cut but probably never intended it to go out at that length I wasn't delving into Stevie's personal life at the time, so I was never told what it was actually about. I always assumed it was addressed to her friend, who was Mick's wife at the time. Stevie then added, It was a 16-minute demo. My friend Sarah was there when I wrote it. She kept the coffee going and kept the cassettes coming and made sure we didn't run out of batteries. And it was a long, long night recording that demo. She was a great songwriter helper. Sarah was the poet in my heart. She likes to think it was written it was all written about her, but it really wasn't. She's in there for sure, but it's written about a lot of other things too. Mick was the great dark wing within the wing of a storm. But when I was going with Mick, I was hanging out with JD Souther and he kept saying, You know you do know this relationship with Mick is never going to work, don't you? And I said, Well when I get out of it I'll let you know. And so there's bits and pieces of him there talking to me. It's also noted that Sarah could also be referencing Stevie's alter ego because when she checked in to the Betty Ford Clinic for rehab, she called herself Sarah. So there you go. Um, Nick's, I mean, I've spoke about this before, but she's definitely, I think, the most the most open about her struggles and her personal life out of any of the band members and she's since gone on to speak about this and how she felt as though she couldn't have a child whilst in the band she said i didn't feel like i could have a child during those first 10 years i felt it would have broke up the band because it wouldn't have been because it wouldn't have been with anybody in the band in fleetwood mac it would have been a disaster i just couldn't even imagine walking in with that news it wouldn't have went down well. I probably would have said I'm going away for a year and it would have broke up Fleetwood Mac. So yeah, it's quite a sad song. It's beautiful. Um, it's quite sad that she felt like she, if she want, even if she wanted to keep that child that she couldn't. Um, which I feel was like a massive thing back then, like, in music and probably it probably it probably definitely is now like it's such a commitment people are expecting you to churn out records like yearly um and if you're not doing that people lose interest so like imagine becoming pregnant and having to take some time off because you would like you know yeah you could go and record and stuff like also that environment at the time probably would not have been the best for a pregnant stevie um she would have had a lot to work through. So yeah, it's quite sad that she felt like she just could it, it literally wasn't even an option for her. Like she couldn't even think about if she wanted it. Um 
yeah, listen to the song if you're not familiar with it and get up genius and look at the lyrics. You won't regret it. It is stunning. But yeah, Tusk actually sold 4 million copies worldwide. Um, Mick blamed... So like it was... That figure classifies it as relatively unsuccessful, at least commercially, I think. Critically, like, a lot of people digged it. Digged it. What the fuck was that? A lot of people liked it uh, critically. But, yeah, Mick blamed the album's lack of commercial success on the Orkeo radio chain having played the album in its entirety prior to release, thereby allowing mass home taping. Like, what is it with people leaking fucking artists' music? I'm sick of it. Like, respect the artistry. Respect the work that's gone into it. Respect that there's probably a reason why they want to release it at a certain time and they want to release certain singles before others. Um, You know, they don't just, like, sit... It, I don't know what I'm trying to say. They don't. It's not like they're just. They don't care about it. Like they've put months and months and months into this. Like for Tusk, it took them a year to record that. The same as Rumors. And then some radio fucking channel just goes and leaks all the songs. Like, what? No. Um. On another note, the production costs were initially estimated to be about one million dollars, but many years later were revealed to be about one point four million which is at the when was that the 70s which would be the equivalent to 5.23 million in 2021 which makes it the most expensive rock album recorded to that date um lindsay really wasn't fucking around he was like listen i'm gonna record a 20 track double back album i'm gonna get a fucking 116 piece marching band in here um yeah we're gonna spend a year on it I'm going to cut all my hair off and record some of the songs at home. I'm going to do push-ups and sing into the mic. We're going to order crates and crates and crates of champagne. Christ knows how many crates and crates and crates and crates and crates of cocaine. Um, because there was an interview where Stevie said that, um, you know, two weeks worth of cocaine that they bought during the Tusk recordings um, would have paid for her rent for two months. And, you know, at that time she did just buy the big Tudor home called Fantasyland in Sunset Boulevard so I can imagine that that was quite fucking expensive um so yeah crazy money going into that record at least it's good I mean I like it so the band then embarked on a whopping 11 month tour to support and promote the album they traveled around the world including the US Australia New Zealand Japan France Belgium Germany the letter the Netherlands the Netherlands and the United Kingdom um in Germany they actually shared the bill with the reggae superstar himself Bob Marley can you imagine a world where you're seeing Bob Marley and Fleetwood Mac on the one stage iconic I would love that um and on this world tour the band recorded music for their first live album which was released at the end of 1980 um so yeah when a battled weary Fleetwood Mac ended the Tusk tour at the Hollywood Bowl in late 1980 they were physically and mentally drained and barely able to stand the sight of each other Christine later recalled, I used to go on stage and drink a bottle of Don Pernio. Is that how you say it? Don Pernio? Don Pernio? 
anyone, however you say it, and drink one off stage afterwards. It's not the kind of party I'd like to go to now. There was a lot of booze being drunk and there was a lot of blood floating around the alcohol, which doesn't make for a stable environment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds a bit bloody hectic, alright. Alright. So, after the Tusk tour, the band was put on hold as members recharged their depleted batteries. Um, Nix, Buckingham and Fleetwood all made solo albums, but when only Stevie's was successful, um, accountants and record company executives were soon agitated and really wanted another Fleetwood Mac album. And the band reconvened to make Mirage. Released in 1982, it was an unsatisfactory album that lacked either the raw emotion of rumours or the runway ambition which Buckingham had injected into Tusk. It sounded like a record made for the sole and cynical purpose of sustaining the Fleetwood Mac brand. Now, that is not my words. That is um, that is taken from a review, but I can't say I disagree with it. I don't hate it. God, it's got some bangers on there. Gypsy, Diane, whoa, Diane. Um, but it is, it just sounds quite, for someone so successful to sleep with Mac and so creative, it did just seem quite generic and it was just like, they got so much fucking stick about Tusk. Like, poor Lindsay got so much shit from everybody. Like, not just critics, like the band were like, this is your fault. If this is not successful and nobody wants to come see us, it's your fault. You were taking the blame for this. Um, which is quite like, that's quite scary for him. He really wanted it to do well. And I think it's, I think Tusk is a much better album than Mirage. Um, but obviously there was like a lot of pressure from, again, from Warren Brothers and, and the label to produce like another more accessible, I would definitely say. I, I think Rumours is much more accessible to listen to than Tusk. And obviously Mirage then is much more successful. Not successful. Accessible to listen to as well. Um, but I just don't think it, it has the same fire. It doesn't have the same... It doesn't evoke the same feelings from me as some of their other albums do. Like, I don't feel it in my bones as much as I do um, with, like, the White Album, Rumours... Even Tango in the Night, I prefer it much more. Um, Buckingham says, The most disappointing thing to happen... The most disappointing thing to me after Tusk was the politics in the band. He said, we're not going to do that. He he admits that they said, um, as in the band and the record label, we're not going to do that again. I felt dead in the water from that. On Mirage, I was treading water saying, okay, whatever. And taking a passive role. For me, none of the albums after Tusk quite had it. I think we lost something after that. And you know, that's quite that's quite pivotal. Oh my god, I can't speak. Well, I don't know what it is about this mic. It just makes me lose all ability to speak. But that's quite significant. Um, I will say it time and time again. Fleetwood Mac would be nothing without Lindsay. Um... And that's not to say that he's the most talented out of them. Absolutely not. Um, I think they're all carry something different, but he's definitely the brains of the operation. He 
is so knowledgeable on like recording techniques um you know composition what works well with this how to interpret it these harmonies um he's just very knowledgeable in like the the literal making and and he produces everything like he got paid the most out of all of Fleetwood Mac um and it wasn't for a gender pay thing or anything it was because he produced so they all got equal um writing like royalties I think but if you produce the songs you you automatically get paid more so he produced almost everything wrote a lot of the songs that were coming in for Fleetwood Mac were like his material um so like once he kind of clocks out of it it's not it's not going to hold up you know god Stevie and Christine and John and Mick are so fucking talented but you need the glue I, I feel like Lindsay's the glue that holds it all together um at least, or I don't know, you can argue that about all of them, but he's definitely the brains. That's not obviously to say they're all stupid, but he has, like, a knowledge that the rest of them don't have. So, yeah, he just kind of clocked out of Mirage. He was like, whatever, have this have this generic album if you want it. Um, Christine said that Mirage was an attempt to get back into the flow that rumours had, but we missed that vital ingredient that was the passion i agree i agree christine um i mean also it doesn't help that it's probably like incredibly difficult to write albums like this when people are going through so many personal struggles because during this time once again it's actually not to do with mick i know you thought oh is mick at it again no we're back to our girl stevie if it's not mick it's stevie she released another solo album um titled wild heart which premiered in 1983 i think mirage was released did i say 1982 um but she also made news when she married kim anderson who was the widowed husband of her lifelong best friend robin who had um succumbed to leukemia stevie said and i quote I married Robin's husband, Kim Anderson, because Robin was one of the few women who ever got leukemia and then got pregnant. And they had to take the baby, named Matthew, at six and a half months. And then she died two days later. And when she died, I went crazy. I just went insane. And so did her husband. And we were the only two that could really understand the depth of grief that we were going through. And I was determined to take care of that baby. So I said to Kim, I don't know, I guess we should just get married. And so we got married three months after she died. And it was a terrible, terrible mistake. We didn't get married because we were in love. We got married because we were grieving and it was the only way we could feel like we were doing anything. And we got divorced three months later. I haven't seen Kim, nor have I seen Matthew since that day. I suppose that Matthew will find me when he's ready. I mean, I am really next to Robin, his mommy. But Kim and I can't deal with each other at all. So when the baby's old enough, I have all his mother's things and I have her life on film for 14, 15 years. I have us on tape singing. 
I have a beautiful book that I wrote the year that she died. I have a room full of stuff for him. I have his mother to give back to him when he's ready. Um, yeah, like, that's quite... That's quite an insane story, like... And... I'm not... I can't... I could never judge that situation because it's such a bizarre series of events that like you honestly like I could never imagine like losing my best friend never mind to something so awful like leukemia never mind while she was pregnant as well um it must like grieving that I can't imagine like how one would even go about grieving that so um her marrying him it doesn't I feel like objectively, like, it's kind of like, that's fucking insane. You married your best friend's husband after three months after I died, but, um, or she died. But I don't think, like, as she said, like, it's not like they were, like, shagging behind her back. Like, not the case. I just think the two of them were like, we can look after Matthew, the son, and we can do it together, but we need to be married. Um, and I can only imagine what the press and the tabloids and or I don't know if there was press and tabloids at that time, probably not, but you know, like, what the media, whatever capacity the media was at at that point, was saying about her, um, because it is quite a bizarre story, but what she said about Matthew was really sweet, she obviously wrote that when, uh, Robin first passed away, I couldn't find anything else, like, any more updates, as if she ever actually met him or whatnot, but yeah, so that was happening while they were recording Mirage, um intense um and after that album they kind of went on a bit of a hiatus for a few years to pursue solo careers so next released two more solo albums buckingham issued go insane in 1984 um and christine released an album that year as well and all three of them were met with success but you know Stevie was undeniably the most popular and during this hiatus even more shit was going down would you believe would you believe and it's our two main culprits again Mick and bloody Stevie not together thank god this time but um and John, John was having some issues there too, but John's a private man, like, it's very hard to find information on that man online, my digging skills are not good enough yet, but yeah, during this period, um, Fleetwood filed for bankruptcy, Nix was admitted to the Betty Ford Clinic, and John had suffered an addiction-related seizure, all of which were attributed to the lifestyle of excess afforded to them by their worldwide success. So yeah, for Mick, they were the beginning of what he described as the lost years, which stretched on into the 90s. Um, along the way, he had to declare bankruptcy and was relieved of his duties as the band manager. Much of his money um, went on drugs, although he insists even more of it was lost on property deals that went wrong. He recalls it was a wild trip that didn't stop for nine years. I tried very hard to leave the planet and I nearly did. I don't want to romanticise something that's extremely dangerous. It was fun but it was a bloody nightmare and I would never do it again. It became boring. Um, and then in an interview with Rolling Stone, 
Christine remembers, um, as she recalls, the sad day when Big Daddy became Little Daddy. As I said in the last episode, they used to call Mick Big Daddy. Big Daddy Mick, which sounds kind of weird, but whatever. She said, everything about him became little. He wasn't walking with his shoulders straight like he always used to. It was sad to see that. He didn't seem happy. Didn't know how to function unless he was high. He would just sleep the whole time. Just hooked on drugs, about as low as he could get. I remember him telling me he was living in somebody's basement with a damp carpet. The carpet was soaking wet and the bed was damp. And he used to lie in bed watching soap operas all day. I wonder what he watched. He strikes me as like a neighbour or a home and away guy. A bit of Australian soap operas. Or maybe a telenovela. Mm, anyway well who knows um but i mean that yeah it is sad and then an even more casualty came from the far more fragile figure of stevie whose cocaine addiction was escalating desperately out of control her use had begun as much as a way of coping as a means of getting high she said I'd never felt so tired in my life. When I joined the band, the rock and roll life was a shock to my system. It's so intense and so heavy and being in Fleetwood Mac was like being in the army. I was doing a lot of drugs just to get me through to the next thing. I don't remember how much we did, but we spent an awful lot of money on it. Um, And although the coke worked for a while, there was a high price to pay. She said, we never stopped never took vacations and with coke you can stay up way too late you don't sleep for three days but then it backfired that's what i tell people and the payback is a bitch nobody should go through what i went through it's not even that good there was a little bit of fun but it wasn't fun enough to destroy your life it creeps me out even thinking about it so her addiction actually became more dangerous when a doctor discovered a dime-sized hole in her nasal cartilage big enough to cause a brain hemorrhage which resulted in her ending up putting aspirin dissolved in water up her nose to treat headaches. She states in a Rolling Stone interview that when somebody advised me to go see a plastic surgeon he said to me the next tooth that you do could be your last the tissue in your nose is very delicate it could go straight up to your head and then you could drop to the floor and die a lousy two-hour death so what i did was finish my tour i had to be very careful just a tiny little bit very careful um and yeah by 1986 she claimed that she hit rock bottom and she checked in to the betty ford clinic She said, I knew I was going to die and I didn't want to die. So I was on my way. I did my 28 days and I came out and I was brilliant. I was as strong as an ox and felt great. I could feel myself starting to glow again and I was totally excited about my life. When I walked through those doors at Betty Ford, they searched me and took away all my stuff. It was like, okay, I'm never doing that again because I'm never coming back to a place like this. And she was true to her word. Um, She said she'd never seen cocaine since 1986 and no one would ever take it out in front of her because they knew she would call the police. Um, I mean, she didn't know it at the time, but the worst was unfortunately yet to come. Um, 
Nobody around her believed that she could stay clean and her friends collectively intervened to persuade her to visit a psychiatrist. Um, firstly, rude, like have a bit of fucking fit in your friend. And um, why are you sending her to a psychiatrist? I, I couldn't find like a reason to that question. Like, I wondered, did it did they send her to a psychiatrist because they thought she was going to relapse? Um, was that the only reason? Like, have a bit of have a bit of faith. Come on, you got to be supportive. Like, if someone goes out of rehab and you're instantly like, I don't think you're going to stay off it. Like, they they probably won't now for fuck's sake. But um, she did decide to go see a psychiatrist. And he prescribed her a very strong tranquilizer called. I'm trying to figure out how to pronounce this. Um, Colonopin. Anyway, we're just going to call it a very strong tranquilizer. Um, and Stevie's still angry about this. She said, I agreed to see this psychiatrist to make everybody happy. But if I had made a wrong turn and got lost and not arrived at the psychiatrist's office that day, the destiny destiny of my life would have been so changed. Her account of the addiction which ensued is quite scary, actually. She says, He gave me two little blue pills, one at morning and one at night. Within a couple of months, that turned into four little blue pills. Then it became 15 little blue pills. He kept increasing my dose. I was in there every two weeks for an hour and he watched me grow heavier and the light went out of my eyes. If I started to run out, I would start to shake so hard people would stare at me. I thought I had Parkinson's disease. I was sick and high and miserable and overweight. I knew I was going to die. She said, finally one day in the early 90s, she realised she could not go on. I called up my manager and said, come get me and take me to a hospital because I'm not going to be alive in two weeks. So she ended up spending 47 days in the Daniel Freeman Hospital in Marina del Rey. Um, and turns out the kicking a prescription tranquilizer is far more un- unpleasant than kicking um, a cocaine addiction. She said, my hair turned grey, my skin peeled off, I couldn't sleep, I had a te- terrible headache and my body felt like it was burning. Um, Nick survived, but again, understandably bitter about the situation. She states that these psychiatrists and the medical community are the worst drug dealers in the world. These drugs will make you fat, ruin your life, make you miserable and destroy anything you want to do and nobody tells you that. So that's what poor Stevie was going through um, during their little hiatus. And during this time, it was rumoured that Fleetwood Mac had been disbanded. But Lindsay commented that he was unhappy at allowing Mirage um, remain the band's last effort. So by the time the band reconvened to record the 1987 Tango in the Night... Nix had already been addicted to tranquilizer for a year and was in no fit state to make a record. And Fleetwood's drug abuse was also rendering him largely, you know, unresponsive. So once again, it was left to Lindsay to pull the album together. No better band for the job, let me tell you. You know, he, he tried to play passive in Mirage and it went tits up for him. And he's got two kind of 
I mean, what use are Stevie and Mick while they're uh, incapacitated? Not much. So he's trying to rile up the troops here and get the album together. He said, we had to rise to the occasion. It was very difficult record to make. Half the time Mick was falling asleep. We spent a year in the record, but we only saw Stevie for a few weeks. I had to pull performances out of the words and lines and make parts that sounded like her that weren't her. He concedes that uh, Stevie was the most challenging to deal with, but nobody was excluded. Everybody was at their worst, including myself. We made the progression from what we from what could be seen as an acceptable or excusable amount of drug use to a situation where we had all hit a wall. I think of it as our darkest period. So with Stevie only managing two songs and Christine three, Lindsay had to contribute six compositions um, that he actually gave, that he had for his next solo record he had to give them up for the album and they were Big Love Caroline and Family Man um he said if he hadn't done so he recognised that there simply wouldn't have been an album he said that the rest of us oh no Mick said that the rest of them were completely devoid of any focus um but you know thanks to Lindsay's efforts the result was a more than acceptable return to form um the album went on to be their best-selling release since Rumours, especially in the UK where it hit number one three times in the following year. The album sold three million copies in the US and contained four hits, Christine's Little Lies and Everywhere, Stevie's Seven Wonders and Buckingham's Big Love. Um, I fucking love Tango in the Night. I love it. I think it sounds so Fleetwood Mac, but it's really... You can tell it was made in the 80s rather than in the 70s with um, Rumours and Tusk like it's got the sense there's a much more like disco-y groovy feel to it I love Big Love by Lindsay Buckingham like I think that's my favourite song on the album I love that song obviously you have Everywhere again I've said it once and I'll say it again Christine McPhee is the queen of making the boppy hits for Fleetwood Mac Everywhere Little Lies Tell Me Lies Tell me sweet little lies. My voice is starting to go. I'm sounding croaky. I'm so sorry. Um. So, I think it was a fucking good effort on their part. You know, after the hiatus and you know the drama that was happening and the personal struggles everyone was going through, I think good effort and fair play to you, Lindsay. I and I'm sure I'm not the only one recognise that we wouldn't have got this without you. We would not have got this album without you, and it's a banger. Um, but it was a bit too much for <laughs> for Lindsay. I think that album and recording it really just got too much for him, and he was quite distressed by the whole experience and particularly disturbed by the condition of former lover Stevie. He said, the way people were conducting their lives made it difficult to get serious work done. Mick was pretty nuts then. We all were. In terms of substance abuse, that was the worst it got. And Stevie was the worst she's ever been. I didn't recognise her. She wasn't the person I once known. So all of this directly contributed to a showdown in August 1987 when Buckingham walked out of the band, seemingly for good, 
He said, when I was done with the record, I said, oh my God, that was the worst recording experience of my life. And compared to making an album, in my experience, going on the road will multiply the craziness by five times. I just wasn't up for that. I needed to pull out of the machine and try to maintain a level of integrity for the work that wasn't about the scale for the work that wasn't about the scale or the scales. So yeah, Lindsay just left. He basically said, listen guys, album's recorded. I done all the work. Thanks for fucking nothing. I'm leaving. Not going on tour with you. Can't deal with you anymore. Stevie, get your fucking shit together. I'm sick of looking at you. Nick, you're a slob. Um, and yeah, just, just walked out. He was like a bad bitch. And you know, they really did think that they could replace him. They really did. And they tried to. They recruited not one, but two guitarists um, in the form of Rico Vito and Billy Brunette. Um, and the six-piece lineup recorded the 1990 Forgettable album, Behind the Mask. Um, and that went so terribly that Stevie and Christine also left. They were like, wow, this is what it's like to truly flop. I'm not here for it. We've been riding on the wave of success for too long and I just, I need to leave it a bit of dignity. So Stevie would go on to pursue her solo career um, while Christine said that she would still record for the band but she would no longer tour with them. The band had a series of very heart-filled conversations regarding the split and their publicist at the time said that everybody was trying to work together. However, for Stevie, her exit reportedly stemmed from the track Dun 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 Silver Fucking Springs. This song. I swear this song is its own entity. It has a there's something about it. It just keeps coming back to haunt people. And that's why she left, apparently. And I think I did mention this in the last episode, but the song was originally obviously recorded for rumours. We talked about that. Didn't end up getting on the album. Nick's planned on including it um, on her 1991 greatest hits album, Time Space, but Mick refused and instead he used it on the 25 Years The Chain, a two-disc box set released in 1992. And on the rumour mill, according to the grapevine, this disagreement led to Stevie quitting the band. Um, So yeah, do you know what? I also think hell yeah Stevie they wouldn't put your masterpiece of a song on rumours they then put it on the B side of Go Your Own Way Um, it's your song you want to put it on your album and now now when it suits Mick when the band is crumbling he wants to put it on on a compilation album uh uh it, it ain't gonna fly it ain't gonna fly she's out that door she's out the door Um. Yeah, I mean, the rhythm section, which is John and Mick, they tried to to soldier on. They released another album in 1995 with um, a female singer called Becca Bramlett singing to try and replace kind of both Stevie and Christine, and it was even less satisfying than The Mask. Um, but, you know... The rumours line up, it refused to die. It refused to die. Because Bill Clinton, our boy Bill, brought them back together. You know, because he used Don't Stop in his presidential campaign. And convinced them all to 
reunite and perform it as at his inaugural ball. And then five years later, on the 20th anniversary of Rumours, came the reunion tour and the dance, um, which was the live album that I'm obsessed with, that I keep telling you all to listen to. You can also watch it on YouTube. It's phenomenal. has some of the best live recordings ever. Not just of Fleetwood Mac, but especially of Fleetwood Mac, but ever. Yes, they did that. They did that. Um, Mick said that looking back, it's like listening to war stories. But you have to remember, there were people yelling in pain with their legs shot away. There's blood and guts and disagreements still to this day, but that's what makes it mean a shit. That's what make that's what makes it mean shit. Yeah. Preach. Preach Mick. So yeah, they had their little reunion in nineteen ninety seven for the dance. And then in nineteen ninety eight, Christine leaves Fleetwood Mac again. She said, I think that I was probably just burnt out when I left and I was frightened to fly. Um, but 16 years later, she returned in 2014 to tour with the band. And then she was living quietly in England after releasing some of her own solo music, but missed being on stage. The truth of the matter is the only people I want to play with were the people I played with all my life. These guys, Fleetwood Mac, she said upon her return. But, you know, the good times, they can't last forever because Buckingham leaves Fleetwood Mac for the second time. Um, Yeah, well, he didn't actually leave. He was fired from the band after a disagreement over touring commitments. That's nice. Um, I do recall, and I must see clarification on this, um, one of my best friends ever, Mr. Paul Booth, who is a massive Fleetwood Mac fan I remember it, it could have been around 2017, 2018 they were playing in the RDS in Dublin and I didn't get tickets and I can't believe I didn't get tickets for that like now that I'm recording this and knowing that Christine's dead and everything else it's quite upsetting but anyway he, I believe that he told me he got tickets for that and he went to see them and then like an hour or two before the show, Lindsay just, he wouldn't come out and play. He just sacked it off. Um, so I feel like this was around a similar time. So he must have got fired from the band. with Because it says here, fired from the band after disagreements over touring commitments. So I wonder was it something to do with that. But I remember Paul telling me that it was to do with him and... Stevie having an argument. Do you know what I'm going to do, actually? I'm going to voice note Paul, and I'm going to see if he gets back to me. Let me pause right here. I think what had happened was he had already been fired from the band before the tour. So what happened was, what I had read coming up to it, was that he wasn't going to be performing in Dublin because he wanted to delay the, th- the tour by three months to work on his own album, and he was planning on touring. And um, I think Dublin was one of the first European stops. Um, I went and saw them in early, middle of June, I think it was. Um, and he wasn't there. He had been replaced um, by two guitarists who previously worked in the band. Um, Aha! So there you go. 
he was already sacked. So yeah, it must have been to do with um, his... What did I say it was to do with... He was fired from the band after disagreements over touring commitments. That sounds pretty accurate to me, Paul. Thank you. Um, I don't know why I thought it was an argument with Stevie, because, I mean, it also wouldn't be a surprise, would it, if it was. Paul did text me, though, and said, I do think there was more to it, and, like, Stevie got a lot of flack, saying she forced him out. And he did just send me loads of fucking videos of him in the gold circle at the RDS at the gig um, to use for audio. Um, I can't seem to insert them into this recording though, so I might post them on my Instagram with his consent. But yeah, I'm firstly very jealous that Paul's seen them and I didn't. And also we're currently having a WhatsApp conversation and he has said Rage and Lindsay wasn't there he's so glad he saw Christine it would have been one of the last times the six of them played together the six of them the six of them there's only five of them anyway um, but yeah the two guitarists that he refers to I assume are the same two people that took over when Lindsay left back in Back in 1870, no, 1987, um, yeah, Billy Burnett and Rick Vito. But yeah, that was kind of, that was coming to the end. I mean, <laughs> Buckingham was fuming though because um, that was in April he got fired and then in October 2018, Buckingham sues Fleetwood Mac um, for he took multiple charges against former bandmates including breach of fid- breach of fiduciary duty breach of oral contract and intentional interference with prospective economic advantage um, a representative for the band denied any wrongdoing saying Fleetwood Mac strongly dispute the allegations presented in Mr Buckingham's complaint and look forward to their day in court um, the lawsuit was in fact settled Two months later, however, no details were ever publicly disclosed. Um, Then we have June 2022. In an interview at Rolling Stone, Christine discussed the possibility of a farewell tour. While the keyboardist said she didn't feel physically up for it, she shared her hopes for Buckingham's return. I always want Lindsay back, she said. He's the best. Christine also revealed that Fleetwood Mac had unofficially split following their 2018-19 world tour. We've kind of broken up now, so I hardly ever see them, she said of her fellow bandmates. Um, And then, really, really sadly, a few months later, so November last year, November 2022, Christine McPhee dies at the age of 79 after suffering a short illness. So yeah, months later, Mick, at the Grammys actually, he and himself and Cheryl Crow did a tribute for Christine at the Grammys this year and he said that a Fleetwood Mac reunion was unthinkable following Christine's death. He said, I truly think the line in the sand has been drawn with the loss of Chris. I say we're done, but then we've all said that before. And yeah, they performed a very heartful tribute to Christine that night. And yeah, I mean, I would say that's the story of Fleetwood Mac, but 
we all know that there's probably so much more. We didn't really go into any of their solo careers, Stevie solo, any of that. Um, but I think, you know, I don't, I, I highly doubt this is the last time I'm going to talk about Fleetwood Mac on the podcast. But I do feel like there is a good place to kind of end this little two-parter on Fleetwood Mac. And at least if I do more episodes about them in the future or refer to them, we can always refer back to these two episodes because I do feel like they've been quite in-depth. I'm, I thoroughly enjoyed researching this. Like, honestly, researching and, like, typing up stuff and do it's like I go off a script because I kind of have to or else I literally will I rant anyway with the script if I didn't have a script I would rant um but like researching stuff like it's I just I love it I honestly could spend hours doing this and then I get so excited to record like so by the time I get on the mic on the mic my DJ by the time I get on the mic I'm honestly hyper I'm giddy to record and I love that I love that for me so exciting but yeah I thoroughly enjoyed doing this two-parter and I hope you did I think it was quite insightful actually I learned a lot about them that I didn't know so I hope that you all did um and I hope it inspires you to go listen to their bangers to their absolute fucking bangers i'm gonna put up a few more instagram stories and posts in the coming days about it um but i loved hearing all your favorite fleetwood mac songs in my recent instagram story i put up if you don't follow me on instagram please do it is just at bitches and bangers um same uh same as on tiktok i'm trying to make more tiktok still but it's not going very well for me but yeah bitches and bangers on instagram um please like my page interact follow the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to i seen um after you get a certain amount of reviews on spotify it tells you how many you have so i currently have 13 which i know like isn't a lot but I got really excited when I could see like the figure the other day on Spotify. So if you haven't already rated it, please give it five stars or four stars or whatever you think. Um, share it with your friends or people that you think would like it. And let me know what you thought. And if anybody has any suggestions for future episodes, I do have a massive list. But I'm more than happy to put more ideas in there. Um, let me know. And yeah, I'm hoping that I won't be away for as long as I was the last time. Um, I, I love doing this. It really makes me happy. It people, someone asked me the other day, like, how do I feel after I do it? Like, do I feel drained and tired and exhausted? I was like, no. I honestly be so giddy. Like, I'm gonna be jumping up the walls here now. I don't know how I'm gonna sleep. Um. So yeah, I just want to say thank you for listening to this. And if you did listen to any of the episodes, and if you're new here, welcome. Thank you go listen to the other two episodes you'll enjoy them too and that is all from me for now but i will see you super super soon thanks guys